This message first aired on the radio on July 2nd, 2003. Well, good evening. This is John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. If you wonder about that name, it's the name of our website, BibleStudy.net. We've been taking up a series of subjects over the past month, and we've come toward the end or to the end of our present topic. And because our topic presently is the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, and it's a very large topic, taking up the seven parables of the kingdom of the heavens that apply thereto in Matthew chapter 13, and now today taking up the what may be considered the eighth one, or it may be it is an eighth parable in a sense, but it may not be a, a parable. It doesn't appear to be, to me, to be a parable of the kingdom of the heavens, but a parable nonetheless. We want to take the opportunity that we have today to summarize some of the pieces of portions of Scripture and uh, fill in some of the context prophecy-wise to finish out, more or less, the uh, teaching on these seven parables. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ lined these seven parables up in a particular order for us, and we've been spending our last three days on the final three parables, which are house parables, and which require, I would uh, suggest to you uh, a good amount of background scripture to understand them well. Because the last three parables really have to do with Israel. We might say that the last three parables, the fifth, sixth, and seventh parables of Matthew 13, have to do with Israel in the sense of Israel as God's chosen nation, and and uh, a, a context for that, that Israel will be hid Israel will be bought by the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering and death. Israel is hidden again, but is God is yet God's peculiar treasure. And then we see is Israel as it's set aside, and there then we see the parable of the merchant man who takes up as his purpose one pearl of great price, and that is the age that we are in today, the age of the church, which is his body. It's a time when when God is taking out from the Jews and the Gentiles one new man, uh, and I emphasize one new man in Christ Jesus, and uh, that there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile today in Christ. And then this present age will end and transition and turn back where God will take up Israel in his remarkable way, and then Israel will a remnant of Israel will reach the Gentiles in a, in also in a remarkable way, and then at the end, finally, all Israel will be saved. With this prophetic layout, with this outline of time before us, we need to take a firm grasp of that and keep it fixed in our minds so that we don't become confused about what's going on today, what's gone on in the past, and what may go on tomorrow. This is much of the reason why we're exhorted in the Scriptures to cut the Word of God straight. You know, there are a great many topics of interest that we can take up. I'm, there are many interesting topics. I'm a person who has a reasonably eclectic range of interests. For example, I have a sporting interest. I have an interest in sports like many people do. I have an interest in world affairs. I have an interest in history, geography, I have an interest uh, that remains uh, amazingly in economics, which was what I studied while in school. Um, I served some time as a journalist, and so I 
do a good amount of reading of current events. And there are so many interesting things that we can take up, and that's actually one of the problems. One of the problems that we have today is that we have an array of interesting things. We have, as one has put it, we have multitudes and multitudes of opportunities presented to us by the devil in which we may waste our time. Now, not all these things are a waste of time, and I don't begrudge anyone enjoyments that they can properly afford and in good conscience enjoy, but I do know that we've neglected the Word of God. And so, though there are many interesting and important matters that we might take up during this hour, BibleStudy.net is a ministry of our local church to reach you with the teaching of the Word of God. And so we we want an hour of preaching, and that's what we have, and it's unusual, and it, and it could be a different sort of radio for you, but we trust that you take advantage of this effort to expound the Word of God, to simply teach the Word of God, just, just to expose what the Word of God says. That being said, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, about, you, you may not realize this, but if you have gone to the website, you'll see that there's a, a selection of two scriptures that we have on that website. Now, we had we had 30-some thousand verses to choose from, and they're all good, and they're all inspired by God, and we selected just two of them. One may change, but the one that won't change uh, is the is the scripture out of Romans chapter 1, where we learn that the Word of God is the power of God. And a lot of times we think other things are more powerful. We don't we don't really, even those of us who believe in the Word of God, oftentimes put out of our minds the certain truth that the Word of God is indeed the power of God or the dynamite of God. And we may take up other means, uh, other means of persuasions, other means of evidence. I bristle a little bit, for example, when I hear my Christian brothers turn to the heathen uh, accounts of the flood to verify that indeed there was a flood and and uh, to turn to the records of geology and the opinion of geologists to verify that these things happen because the word of god is the power of god it's romans 1:16 and and we're not to be ashamed of it now what does that mean well, let me read that scripture i am not ashamed of the gospel of christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And let me just say that the Apostle Paul said that to the Romans. He said that scripture to the Romans. And that uh, scripture, I'm not ashamed of it, has to do with, really, he's not ashamed as, one, as a thinking man. Uh, there were uh, three great cities of learning in, in Paul's day, or three notable cities of learning in Paul's day, and he was from one of them. Uh, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was from perhaps probably the third greatest city of learning. And uh, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was quite esteemed as a learned man. Uh, that that the apostle Paul was a brilliant man is, is undoubtable, uh, he uh, he is he he clearly was a brilliant fellow, yet that uh, he he regarded that attribute of himself or what attainment he had because of that attribute as a part of his dung heap. But but when he but he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it was fit for the examination by thinking people. And he said this to the Romans, the other two cities of great learning, probably the number one city is Rome. 
uh, no doubt because of the money that was there. And the, and the, the second great city was Athens, the great city of learning was Athens. And, and Paul brought the Word of God there. It wasn't well taken by those uh, who assembled uh, with nothing else to do but sit around uh, at the University of, of uh, Athens at Mars Hill there, where he spoke to, no doubt, uh, lazy, unthinking college professors. Um, but he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and, and neither are we. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it. It, it is able to withstand all of the best thinking of men, and the, the worst thinking of men won't do any harm to it. It is God's dynamite. And as we've said before, and we say again, if you get into a fight with your fists, you, there are plenty of people, I'm sure, that you could find who would pummel you into submission. But if you have a stick of dynamite against somebody with their bare hands, I think you have to be the favorite. Word of God is the power of God. It is not another book. It's the power of God unto salvation, and it works that wondrous miracle of the new birth as faith is created in the hearer by God. Now, that being said, that's not my main my main point about that, is understanding now that the Word of God is the power of God. Do you understand, my friend, that the Word of God is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile? Now, this is something the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, later in that same epistle. Uh, he spoke about God having set aside Israel, so he, he wrote uh, Romans 1, 16, knowing that God had set Israel aside. He wrote Romans 1, 16, knowing what was appended at the end of the 16th chapter, where he, where he begins to expound on the mystery of the church, which is his body. Uh, I tell you that the Word of God is still to the Jew first. And it will always be to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. As a former Gentile, I'm just glad for the also. And I see from the book of Romans, and I know from uh, the disclosures that uh, have been made to me uh, by God through the Scriptures over the years, that uh, uh, it is a proper desire that the Word of God reach the Jew first. Now, I don't know how to do that. Uh, but that's what this radio program uh, will do, uh, is, is reach the Jew first. So my Jewish friend, uh, this broadcast is for you, and uh, we, we trust that despite whatever um, temptations you may have to turn it off or to put it aside, that, that, that you withhold that and give a good listen, because God's purpose is still for Israel. And we can't understand God's purpose for the Gentile if we don't understand God's purpose and requirement and need uh, for Israel. So we took up the seventh parable yesterday, and we didn't really finish. Of course, we, we don't really finish any of these things. We just touch upon a few things and then go our way. But we, I felt less than complete in discussing the future time when God will again turn to Israel and when Israel will fulfill the parable of the cast net by casting a net into the sea of the Gentiles and bringing in the Gentiles and what great success they'll have. In fact, we, we didn't really run out of time. I just didn't use the time in a, in a way that I could give a proper exposition to some of the important scriptures concerning 
that matter. So today I'm going to use that, and I'm going to take up that eighth parable just a little bit uh, because I don't really have a lot to say about it. But let, let me begin, begin by turning to Revelation, book of Revelation, chapter 7. Of course, turning turning into the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation is kind of a dangerous thing for a preacher to do because uh, it's in the middle of things, and, and getting the setting uh, correctly is a very difficult matter and takes some time, but I'm going to just plunge in and begin reading Revelation 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, And there were sealed a hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. The tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. The tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed twelve thousand. The tribe of Manassas were sealed twelve thousand. The tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000 after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now, I just give that heavenly scene, and I give that prophetic scene, when God will establish 12,000 each out of what will then be the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan being replaced uh, for for the disciplinary reasons that uh, at some time maybe we'll talk about, but Dan being replaced. Joseph bringing in two tribes, the tribe of Joseph and the tribe of his son Benjamin. Uh, There is a time when God will take up 12,000, a literal 12,000, a literal 144,000 Jewish men from those tribes, 12,000 each. Yes, I know that not no one knows who is of what tribe of Israel today, and I've heard the arguments, I've heard the stories. Uh, you Gentiles, uh, you Anglo-Saxon Gentiles, I don't care to hear from you that you're a Jew. Uh, I don't want to hear how, I don't want to hear from you British Israelites. Really, I just don't want to hear from you at all. My my purpose is to leave you alone, and you leave me alone. Uh, but today the Jews do not know their tribes. There's no question about that. I've I've heard discussions that some think that they're of the tribe of Levi because their name is Cohen. I don't think so. You don't know who, which tribe you're in if you're a Jew today. God does. God knows all the tribes. God knows how to seal it. God's going to do the sealing. Uh, he'll take care of that. When he turns back to Israel, he will do it in his, in his remarkable way, and he will take up a remnant of Israel to reach the Gentiles in a, 
in a way, considering time, that the Gentiles have never been reached. But that doesn't, even though there will be blessing through the remnant of Israel, that does not necessarily mean it's going to be a happy time for Israel. And, and, and so in order to understand that, we have to understand some of the prophecies concerning Israel, concerning the future of time, not just concerning Israel, but also considering uh, the future of the entire world. And to do that, we have to really focus in on a scripture that I think is central and that is really hidden from the nation of Israel and has been hidden from the Jews until the time of the Lord Jesus and until uh, the New Testament opens it up. And that's in the book of Daniel and in the ninth chapter. So let me just read there, Daniel chapter 9, and I'll read begin beginning with verse 25, uh, verse 24, a prophecy to Daniel. Seventy weeks, literally seventy sevens, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after the sixty-two sevens shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the until the end of the war, desolations are determined. He shall con confirm the covenant with many for one seven, and in the midst of the seven he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, this prophecy is, is a very involved one, and it's, but it's a very precise prophecy, and it is central to understanding the then future of Israel, the now future of Israel, and the now future of the world. And it is one of the great portions of Scripture that lead us to conclude that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. This prophecy given to the prophet Daniel during, during the time of Israel's captivity and it prophesies in accordance with, also with Jeremiah's prophecy that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, children of Israel taken captive, and it prophesies that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and that the time of the order of that rebuilding of Jerusalem will mark off an extremely important prophetic clock, which if we pay good heed to, will understand the order that God has placed for the future of Israel. And we're going to look at that just in one minute. This is John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. We're looking at Daniel's pro great prophecy, the so-called prophecy of the 77s of, of Daniel. And when we read it, we find that there's two threshold events, really, that we need to look at in it. 
or perhaps you could say three, the first threshold event is when there is a command to restore and build Jerusalem uh, during the time of the captivity. Well, that Jerusalem was restored and rebuilt is certainly the case. No one can doubt that. The command was given. We won't turn to it now because it's an, an oppor- it's a study for another time. But the you can read about it in Nehemiah, the second chapter. You see the, the, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given. The book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the city. It is coterminal with uh, the book of uh, coterminous with the book of uh, Ezra, so you can read those two together and see the rebuilding both of the city and the uh, and the temple as those things uh, go forward. This about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, that command given, and and uh, by the by the by the king of Persia, and that ki- that uh, command then reaffirmed uh, uh, by his son Cyrus and uh, the, the, the son of Esther. Uh, and, and, th- and that happened, and exactly, i just summarize here, and exactly uh, uh, 69 sevens, or 483 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ was cut off, just as this prophecy said, not for himself. And that leaves one of those sevens of Daniel's prophecy yet remaining. And then we had verse 27 of Daniel 9 saying that something will happen in the midst of the week where a sacrifice, or the wits in the midst of the seven. Uh, so something happens where, where sacrifice and ob- oblation cease. Now there's much that can be said here. There's, in fact, uh, there, there are days and days of study that we could take up here. But I just want to point out that that scripture is a guiding one to let us know that there is a time a time of seven years that remains for the nation of Israel. Now, what is that seven-year period? What, well, what, what is that for Israel? Is that the time of great rejoicing for Israel? Well, no, it's not. Uh, uh, we, we, we look forward as, as, as people of goodwill, as those who love Israel for the sake of our Savior. We look forward to the day when Israel will be in its right place as one nation under God. We look forward to the day when there will be peace in Jerusalem. We look forward to the day when God's earthly people, Israel, uh, turn to their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, uh, instead of being in rejection and set aside, they're taken up by him. But we also know that the Bible is every whit true, and that God does things exactly in his own time, and that day is not today. And then we have the unhappy circumstance of also realizing how it is that that time will come to pass. And it will not come to pass through a time of great rejoicing, nor will it come to pass through a time of great evangelism by people like me. Uh, that's, That's not what's going to happen. What's actually going to happen is it's going to become what's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. And that is talked about in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 30 and verse 7. Well, we look at verse 5 and it says, For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? 
Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, this time of Jacob's trouble is yet to come. This is a time of uh, great, so, tr- so great trouble that none has, is, is like it. None will have ever been like it before, and none will ever be like it again after it. There is a time of enormous trouble coming for Jacob. And notice it says, not for Israel, but for Jacob. That's because God's natural people, God's earthly people, and the nation, Israel, which is established today in unbelief, is in for a horrible, horrible time. Uh, This is the prophecy of Jeremiah uh, that says that. Uh, It is not something that will be uh, 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 avoidable by Israel. This, This will happen. Israel will contribute and help bring that time upon themselves as they establish the nation in unbelief. And so the time of Jacob's trouble is that is is coincident with the final uh, seven years that are prophesied in the book of Daniel. During this time, there will be Israel in unbelief, which will suffer merely merely suffer the discipline of the Lord of time of Jacob's trouble, and there will be though that remnant which we named before and others who also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ at that time, whom the Lord will preserve through the time of that trouble. And uh, the the better part of that prophecy, or maybe the more pleasant part of that prophecy for Israel, is in the 8th verse, For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, that is the Gentile yoke, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Now, one thing that's evident today about Israel, you can you can talk about all kind of things, but the one thing that's evident is that Israel's sovereignty in the world is not present. Israel's future depends so much on Gentile goodwill, and that Gentile goodwill will not last. Now, I want to turn to another prophecy uh, concerning Israel, and I, I want to turn to the book of Hosea, and I'll read beginning in... Hosea verse 5, chapter 5, and verse 15. Well, verse 14. I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. Even I will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place till they, that is Israel, acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me diligently. And then we have the voice of Israel in Hosea chapter 6, given to us, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. In the third day he will raise us up. We shall live in his sight. Then shall we know. We follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain as the latter and former reign unto the earth. And so this is Israel now understanding finally in the future, after a time where the Lord hides himself, and he says, the Lord says, I will go return to my place till they, until they acknowledge my, their offense and seek my face in their affliction. What affliction? The time of Jacob's trouble. That is when Israel will seek him diligently.
Now, we have here uh, a couple of things to observe. The first thing we have to observe is in verse 15 that someone is going to return to his place. Well, who is that someone? Who is that someone? It is one who came from his place and then returned to his place. Of course, those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, understand that the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, came from eternity past, became a man through the Virgin Mary, from the house of David, tribe of Judah, came to his own. His own received him not, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, those of us who believe in his name. And then he went back and returned to his place. And we find something else very interesting here. We have Israel in that day saying, after two days he will revive us. In the third day he will raise us up. Now this, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, gave to the generation of Israel in which he came, that wicked generation. He gave them merely the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, what do we learn? That was the sign of Jonah the prophet, but we also, uh, where, where Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish prepared for him, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and rose again from the dead. That's the one who came, was rejected, and went away to his place. Now, prophetically, Israel, just like Jonah, Jonah, in his affliction, sought the Lord. If you were to look at Jonah chapter 2, and I don't say we don't have time, but I'm not going to turn there just now. If you look at Jonah chapter 2 and verse 2, in Jonah's affliction, he seeks the Lord. Jonah, a picture of the nation Israel, as we said yesterday. But here's an interesting thing that Israel says. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up. The Israel of God, of course, will be found totally in resurrection. Daniel will be raised. Moses will be raised. Caleb, Joshua, David, they'll be raised. There will be those of Israel brought through the time of Jacob's trouble, also known as the time of the tribulation, the great one. During that time, God will in resurrection finally, ultimately establish his nation. But it's interesting that it says here after two days in the prophecy. Because if we understand the scripture rightly as taught by the apostles, for example, Peter tells us, know this one thing, that a, keep be mindful of this one thing, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day, then we realize that approximately 4,000 years after Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ came. He's been gone approximately 2,000 years. He will come back and he will rule for 1,000 years. That's the seven days or the septenary arrangement of the scripture around seven days. The Lord Jesus Christ will be gone approximately two days. Why is it that people like myself, like me, say, for example, the Lord Jesus Christ's coming is near? It's because he's been gone approximately two days. I mean, that's one reason. We also don't want to be ignorant, like the wicked generation where the Lord came, who could understand whether it was going to rain today or tomorrow, but couldn't understand the signs of the times they were in. We see all things pointing to the, to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again soon. But his coming is marked first by the time of 
Jacob's trouble, where he again takes up Israel in their affliction. They seek him diligently. Then the remnant of Israel, who finally believe in the Lord Jesus Christ at that time, the church of God being absent, will begin to do an evangelistic work among the Gentiles, which will beggar any efforts of today. You see, God doesn't need a lot of money. God doesn't need television. God doesn't need any of the means that men require him to need to evangelize the whole world. What does God need? Well, all he needs is 144,000 Jewish evangelists. That's how he can reach all the Gentiles. When Israel gets in the right place, then the Gentiles will be happy. As the Word of God says, if the undoing of Israel meant the riches to the Gentiles, that is to say, because God set Israel aside and brought the Word of God to me, for example, if that's a blessing, imagine what God taking Israel back up, what kind of blessing there will be. Well, I wander a bit, but I want to come back to the fact that all of Gentile history turns around Israel. In fact, the whole history of the world and the whole future of the world turns around Israel. Yesterday we talked a little bit about how God established the nations under the Noahic Covenant. He set up uh, three parameters for the nations. He set up human government based on capital punishment. We find elsewhere in the Scripture that he numbered the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. God first formulated the nations uh, in in the covenant that he made with Noah and his sons and the whole earth, every living thing. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he said, eat meat. And he said, execute murderers. And he said, don't drink blood from living things. So that covenant that that he made with the earth further was defined by Noah, who determined that the human family would be ordered this way. Japheth would be blessed by dwelling in the tents of Shem, and Ham would be a servant of servants and would serve both the Japhethites and the Shemites. Now, I didn't decide that, and you didn't decide that. Noah decided that, and that's just the cast of the human family. Now, nobody, if you, if that happened in your family and you were Shem, you'd probably say, well, that, that's fine, I like that. And if you were Japheth, you might say, well, it's good enough, uh, at least I don't have the position of Ham. But if you were Ham, or let's say you were descended from Ham, I mean, if you're Ham, you may realize that you deserved that. But if you're descended from Ham, you may not like that. You may say, yeah, I don't like that. And uh, I don't care what Noah said, and I don't care what God says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get whatever I can. Well, that's what Ham did. And so we had the Hamitic Rebellion leading to the, to the Tower of Babel, leading to the establishment of kingdoms on the earth by men in the face of God. And in that environment, God decided to take up a family, Abraham's family, and create a nation in the face of of the hostility of the world to himself. And so that's what God has. God has a hostile world to himself. Look, the Gentiles are hostile to God. Everything about the nations is hostile to God. They overthrow even that covenant which God made with them so that he didn't have to destroy the whole earth, and they're, and they're overthrowing every tenet of it. So God in his mercy trying to preserve man, man in his wickedness trying to destroy the arrangements of God, what do we have? We have consistent human rebellion against God. 
And, and that rebellion against God is framed by the Word of God. God timed that rebellion. God made arrangements in the earth, all kinds of arrangements in the earth, splitting the continents, confusing speech, maintaining the blessing of Japheth in the tents of Shem, just in order to exactly establish the timetable so that he could bring to pass these final seven years which we anticipate, including the time of Jacob's trouble. And what will we see at that time? Well, just prior to the time of Jacob's trouble, we will see the rebellion of certain Japhethites who will no longer abide in the tents of Shem. Do you know that great blessing has come to every nation who has loved Israel? Great blessing has come to every nation who has uh, loved the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, the, the King of Israel. It's true. As long as the nations have abided in the tents of Shem, as long as the nations have been those who bless Abraham, God has blessed them. As long as the nations are those who curse uh, uh, God's nation, Israel, God has cursed them just as he promised to Abraham. That is another consolidated history of humankind. And if you look at it, you can detail that out. But finally, ultimately, Japheth will not abide in the tents of Shem. There'll be a rebellion. We're going to look at some of that in another minute. John Malone, we're trying to frame we're trying to frame the future history of Israel, the future history of the nations. And uh, I know there are those, as we talk about the certainty of the prophetic truth, those who believe that because I'm certain, for example, that the Gentile nations will abandon uh, Israel, that they will no longer abide in the tents of Shem and what some some may say, well, what exactly is the tent of Shem? It's a good question, uh, the, because uh, it's not merely becoming a Christian Zionist. That's certainly not abiding in the tent of Shem. It's not becoming earthly-minded. That's certainly not abiding in the tents of Shem. So how how does the Japhethite nations, for example, those descended from Japheth, how do they abide in the tent of Shem? Well, First, we have to understand what Shem's tent was when Noah came out of the this side of the flood. We'll say, let's just say the good side of the flood. When Noah came out of this near side of the flood here, he sacrificed. He built an altar and he sacrificed. And, of course, Noah being now the king of the whole earth, being the patriarch of the family and then his sons being princes, uh, the the four men that's all there were to carry on the program of God well for at the forefront of the program of God always is the way to the tree of life who is our Lord Jesus Christ the way there has always been protected by God you you may remember if you've read the scriptures about uh, Adam and Eve when God cast them out of the garden he placed angels not to keep the tree of life 
He didn't give it to angels to keep the tree of life or to tend it. He gave the angels to keep the way to the tree of life. Uh, That way to the tree of life is our Lord Jesus Christ who came and told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yet man in his rebellion, for example, in the Hamite rebellion, the way to the tree of life, uh, when, when, when the Tower of Babel was uh, established, uh, man tried to destroy the way to the tree of life by making himself a name, by establishing for himself a city, and by, placing, by building a tower, and at the top of the tower an image of the heavens uh, in, in place of God's word. But God took his pain, and God made his arrangements always to have the way to the tree of life kept. Prior to the flood, it was kept uh, according to those arrangements which we just discussed. After the flood, we had the tent of Shem. Now later, God takes the t- uh, establishes in his testimony the tent in the wilderness, where the children of Israel were organized and arranged around that tent uh, in a very orderly fashion, according to the ensigns of their family, arranged under the heaven in a systematic and orderly way. But before that time, we merely had the tent of Shem. Now, the tent speaks to us of tabernacle. That's the word tabernacle and the word tent are really the same word. It is, it is always God's desire to tabernacle or to dwell with men. But what is his tabernacle at any given time? At the time of Noah, uh, clearly, uh, Japheth being said to be blessed in the tent of Shem, we realize that Shem was the keeper of the tent. That is, he was the keeper of the tabernacle. That is to say, the priesthood of, of the humanity uh, after Noah, which is all mankind, the priesthood of mankind was given to Shem and his descendants. And in fact, out of Shem came Eber, from which is our word Hebrew. Out of Eber came Abram, who became Abraham. Out of Abraham became Isaac, and then Jacob renamed Israel. Out of Israel came Judah, uh, descendant from Judah, is David, descendant from David, is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the way, there is your tent of Shem. As long as the Japhethite nations abide with the tent of Shem, they will abide in blessing. And my, how Japhethite nations, and we could discuss who the Japhethite nations are, but let's just broadly say they're the Western European nations. Now, that's not exactly true. It depends what you call Western Europe. Certainly, Eastern Germany is part of the Japhethite tribes. Largely, Russia is also part of Japhethite tribes. Afghanistan, so forth, or Persia. There are many areas we may not call Western Europe that are part of Japheth, but certainly great blessing has come to the descendants of Japheth merely and simply because they abided in the tents of Shem. In fact, it's merely and simply, for example, because Paul heard the Mas- was given the Macedonian call. You remember he heard from some maybe anonymous Macedonian who said, come to us. When he was going to turn right, 
Instead, God turned him left. And my friends, that's why we have the Word of God freely available to us, and we're not a bunch of Hindus who worship cows. The only reason is because Paul turned left instead of turning right. Had he turned right, we'd be worshiping cows. We'd be the ones in enormous darkness. We'd be the impoverished of the earth, and we'd be the ones having uh, Eastern missionaries come to us. But that's not what happened. Paul turned left. He didn't turn right. He went to Macedonia, and the Japhethite nations have been blessed as long as they abide in this truth concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we see going on today, friends? We see Japhethite nations throwing off the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, as so many unbelievers do, we will not have this man to rule over us. So as that happens, uh, you will also see uh, Israel losing its best friends. And you'll see the Japhethite nations uh, believing less and less in the Lord Jesus Christ, as they currently do, and the conditions forming for that final seven years of Jacob's trouble. Now, I just lay that out for you so that you can understand a little better of why there's the need for the parable of the cast net. Uh, certainly, uh, such subjects take far more uh, than an hour's time, but it is in your Bible, and you don't need me to take you there. You can take yourself there and look at all those things that I've touched upon here today. I'd be remiss if I take this whole time and I don't even touch on the eighth parable. So now we're going to take the last couple minutes and we're going to take up what you might call the eighth parable. It certainly does not appear to be a parable that is the of the mystery of the kingdoms of the heaven, but it's an important parable for us anyway, and it's an encouraging one. So now we'll go back to Matthew 13 and take up what is ostensibly the subject of this entire time. Yeah, And in Matthew chapter 13, we see after the Lord gave out the parables and after he said to them at the seven parables and after he said to them have you understood all these things and they say unto him yea lord then he said unto them verse 52 of matthew 13 he, then said he unto them therefore every scribe which is instructed or discipled unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder which brings forth out his treasure new and old I just want to touch on a few things. First of all, understand that the kingdom of the heavens is here something that someone is instructed in or discipled in. And that is another reason why we can understand it to be very different uh, than the church which is his body. For example, the kingdom, of the, the kingdom of the heavens, you're instructed into it or in it. It's something you're instructed in. But you're born into the church which is his body. You're born into the family of God. So here this has to do with with being instructed, or we might even say being discipled. The word disciple is a, is a, is a word meaning instructed. So some things we're just born into and God gives them to us as a free gift. Other things we come to know or we're instructed in and as part of our understanding at having already been born. The kingdom of the heavens is something that we're instructed in. And then he says that the kingdom of the heavens is like unto a man 
that is a householder. While the kingdom of the heavens is in mystery form, in fact, it's just like a man who instructs, who brings out things, an instructed man. And the instructed man is like a householder. And it's okay for you to desire to be this man. It's all right to aspire to to be the kind of person that this householder is. And I envision here, it says, a man who's a householder, which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. Well, whereas it's all right to aspire to it, we also know that God here is a householder like this. He brings out to us things new and old. That is to say, not that there's anything new under the sun in terms of time, for the end and the beginning are all present with God. When you are timeless like God is, when you're eternal, from eternity past to eternity future, then time has no, there's no meaning to time. In fact, everything is set before God as an eternal present. But this doesn't mean new in time and old in time. This means new in character and old in character. And this is the character of God, by the way. God will bring out new things to us, new things to us in terms of never seen, new things to us in terms of uh, in terms of new knowledge or new information. Not that it wasn't available, but that it's new to us. And, and then he'll also bring out things old to us. And so this is now the scribe dis- discipled into the kingdom of the heavens will always be enjoying new and old things. And isn't that a pleasant thing? I picture a, an old man, I'm, be, I'm starting to feel like one, whether, I'm, whether I am an old man or not, I'm beginning to feel like one, I think I'm becoming one. As I sit down with my grandchildren, I like to take things out, show them to him. What a wonderful experience it is, not only for me to do it, but what a wonderful experience it is for them to, to see that. And my friend, that's the experience God wants you to have with the Word of God. Not just, not just once in a while, but he wants you to have that experience as often as you'd like to have it. May he bless you in your study of the scriptures. <laughs> 